Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are pressing on in this little series that we have with James Jordan on the subject of biblical wisdom. And here he's addressing the topic of wisdom literature specifically in the scriptures. As always, do check out those links in the show notes. We would love for you to subscribe to our YouTube channel where we release weekly content on Bible liturgy and culture. Right now, we are in the middle of a series with Peter Lightheart walking through the Sermon on the Mount. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing wisdom literature. Wisdom literature, and then we can discuss all the controversial things I said last night. Now, those of you who've slept on it, of course, have realized that what I said was right. But those of you who didn't sleep probably still have questions. But let's just consider the literature that we mean by wisdom literature. To start with, as you can tell, I'm including Job along with Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Canticles as part of a set. And I'll try to justify that very briefly, although we're not looking at Job. But let's understand the context in which this comes. We were talking last night about the fact that the covenants always come in two steps. We could say the groom form of the covenant, and then death and resurrection, and then the glorified bride form. So... I mean, this is just a tag. It may help you to remember what we're talking about. So, last night we said, God made Adam. God took Adam into death and resurrection. Adam is glorified. He has a bride. God rescues Israel out of Egypt. The first census, there are no women involved. The first giving of the law, the woman is just part of the household. Then we have the death and resurrection of Israel. And of the three main reformers, Aaron, Moses, and Miriam, who is a prophetess, remember, and when she dies is when they find water. Women provide water. Women are found at wells, and the death of Miriam leads immediately to finding water in the wilderness. That transforms Israel. And so the second census is a census of families, not just of sons, and their women included, and the daughters of Zelophehad are mentioned. Anybody remember their names? I gave them to you last night. Hagla, your favorite one. Hagla, Tirzah, Milka, Noah, Mala. Noah, Mala, Hagla, you got them. Noah, Mala, Hagla, Milka, and Tirzah. Hagla. Well, at any rate. And the second giving of the law, the woman is no longer part of the household. Thou shalt not cover thy neighbor's wife. You will not cover his house. You can look after the exile. Cyrus sends the people back, and they start to rebuild the city, and then there's a crisis, there's persecution, they can't rebuild the city, and then the book of Esther comes, and there's death and resurrection, and then Nehemiah comes and glorifies the city. The same progression. The same progression here with David and Solomon. David is the first giving of the kingdom covenant, and then there's death. David sins. David is driven out. That's the end of the book of Samuel is David's being sent out into the wilderness. And then there have to be some deaths. David dies, and David tells Solomon, I know that you'll be wise enough to work out a way to kill Shimei and Joab. What is wisdom? 
Wisdom is the skill to work out a clever way to kill somebody. That's the definition of wisdom in Kings. Or a definition, all right? You'll be able to do it because you're wise. We looked at that last night. Wisdom will teach you how to get rid of these guys and establish your kingdom. And so we have the glorified bride form of the kingdom, and we have the book of Song of Solomon. And Peter will tell us about the remnant covenant, and he'll come up with some way to make this pattern fit with Elijah and Elisha. And we saw that in the new covenant, the same thing happens. We have the covenant made at Pentecost based on Jesus' work. Then we had the great tribulation and the death of the church in the A.D. 60s, and then the bride has made herself ready, and the bride form comes in A.D. 70. This is a consistent pattern in the Bible, the way the covenants come. And so here we are with wisdom literature. Wisdom literature is, to David's Psalms, what Deuteronomy, 40 years later, is to the Word of God in Exodus and Leviticus. It is the new form of the covenant after the death and resurrection. So what are the Psalms of David? Psalms are priestly literature for the sanctuary. It's a liturgical response to the law written on the heart. It's what you sing in God's special presence. Now, liturgical worship is a form of warfare, and so the context of most of the Psalms is the battlefield and an army camp. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And so... The situation of the Psalms very often is a law court where somebody is bringing false accusations. In the early Psalms, at least, psalm after psalm, the enemy that he's talking about is somebody who slanders or is bringing a slanderous accusation before the judges, trying to ruin somebody, trying to ruin David. David was constantly slandered to Saul, you see, while he was out in the wilderness. So he comes before God into God's presence and he prays. And all of this stuff then is collected together and becomes the praise at the temple. This comes first. The garden comes first and then the land. And David provides garden literature, Levitical literature. The focus in David's reign is on Jerusalem. The city is conquered. It's established. It's where he's driven out from. It's where he returns to Jerusalem, the glorified city. So... We've already moved from a priestly to a kingly stage, but this is the first phase of the kingly stage. With Solomon, we get wisdom literature, which is kingly literature for the land. It is a whole life response to the law written on the heart. If David gives us a liturgical response to the law written on the heart, wisdom gives us a whole life response to the law written on the heart. God's word comes first. This literature is response. The Psalms are response in the church. Wisdom is response on the other six days of the week. An example is what it says in Kings chapter 4 about Solomon. You've heard this before, but in 1 Kings chapter 4, 32, well, I'll start actually earlier in verse 29. Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of heart. He had a broad mind. Like the sand that's on the seashore, a head full of sand. No. And Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. You see, there was wisdom stuff going on in these other cultures. You know, about the time God gives the law to Israel, all these other law codes were being written. And then about the time we get wisdom in the Bible, wisdom is going on on the international scene too. 
When we get prophecy in the Bible, philosophy is beginning to arise in the ancient world. Philosophy is a counterfeit of prophecy. But there is a progression in the wider world that is similar to the progression in history in Israel. But the wisdom of Solomon that's in the Bible is better than all the wisdom of the Egyptians and of anybody out in the East. He was wiser than all men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite, He-Man. These are guys that wrote some of the Psalms. Calcol and Darda, the sons of Mahal. I have no idea who they are. And his fame was known in the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 Proverbs. That's a lot more Proverbs than are collected in the book of Proverbs. So somebody was saying last night there might have been a whole lot more kingly literature than we actually have that was for everybody. Well, this was probably for everybody, but we don't have it all. His songs were 1,005. How many songs do we have by Solomon? Well, one book is called the Song of Solomon. That maybe consists of more than one song. Maybe that's not even what this is talking about. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that's in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds and creeps and fish. And men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon, from all the kings of the earth, who had heard of his wisdom. See, wisdom, by me kings reign. All right? That's wisdom. So the kings come for the wisdom. The queen of Sheba comes for the wisdom. Rulers come for the wisdom. But wisdom has to do with all of these things out in the wider world of life. The glorified temple of Solomon links with the land conceptually. The tabernacle is linked up with the wilderness. If you look at the architecture of the tabernacle, it's all covered with this gray goat's hair tent. looks like a cloud. At a distance, looks like a cloud over there. All the stuff is hidden inside, all the glorious stuff. The symbolism of it is the symbolism of Mount Sinai. And when you come into the tabernacle, you go out into a little bit of wilderness space. You come back to Mount Sinai. Your sins are forgiven. The covenant is renewed. And then you go back out. In fact, we can draw this. It's important to see. The tabernacle area has this altar here, which is Mount Sinai. And then it has the tabernacle proper, the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. That's the mountainside, and up here at the top is God's cloud, and that's the top of Mount Sinai. Now, the doorway into here, right out here, this is surrounded by white curtains, which represent what? All these white curtains out here are clouds because you're on the mountaintop. You go up to the mountain. You go to the high place. All the mountains in the Bible. But you get in here through a blue curtain. So allegorically, say, I'm not afraid of allegory. I'm not afraid of allegory. I can't hear you. I'm not afraid of allegory. Better not be because we're going to do the Song of Solomon in a couple of days. Okay, you have sinned. You're now in Egypt, so you need to go through the Red Sea, come back to Mount Sinai, get your sins forgiven, and then cross the Jordan River back into the land. That's what you do. This is wilderness territory. That's exactly what you do. That's why when Israel falls into sin, like in Jeremiah, God starts using Egypt language to describe Israel. Peter has a whole bunch of stuff in that in a house for my name, how Jeremiah says Jerusalem is now Egypt. But every time you sin out here, you're in Egypt. 
And all over the law it says, if you sin, I'll put the plagues of Egypt on you. Don't go back to Egypt. That's a spiritual idea. Sin is Egypt. So the tabernacle is a little slice of wilderness. It's a portable Sinai. You can take it with you wherever you go. The glorified temple links up with the land. If we were to study, which we won't, 1 Kings 6 and 7, and we started looking at the things that are found there, it's not picturing the things that are in it are not wilderness stuff. They're land stuff. First place, the temple itself has a courtyard with a wall around it. Within that courtyard is not just the temple itself, but Solomon's palace. And Solomon's other palatial buildings are now part of the furniture of Yahweh's palace. The king's palace is part of the furniture of the high king's palace. Yahweh is high king. Solomon is junior king. But it's all part of the same stuff. So you have this bronze altar out here. And great bronze sea and bronze labor chariots. And big bronze palace out here for Solomon. Bronze lions or whatever else that they had there. Plus, the decor of this place comes from the land. It's full of lilies, pomegranates, and palms. Again, you're going to pick this up. Jeff's going to deal with this some, I'm sure. But let me just quickly show you. You weren't going to do this where you draw the temple. I'll do it real quick. At the doorway of the temple, you have these two pillars on either side, Yachin and Boaz. They have a ring of pomegranates around the neck, and then the top of them is made like a lily. Out here you have the great bronze sea, which is on the back of all these bulls, which represent the twelve tribes of Israel. Okay, I know I can't draw, but you understand. The bronze sea is out here. It's ringed with pomegranates, and the top of it is made like a lily. There are these water chariots that are out here that have lions as well as oxen on them. Oxen belong with the tabernacle. You bring oxen in. You don't bring any lions in and sacrifice them. Lions are out in the land. David deals with lions and bears. The lion of the tribe of Judah. we got lions around the temple now. And inside the temple, if you were to go into it, which of course you couldn't do, but you'd find palm trees along the walls of the temple inside. So, this decor is land decor. And we have moved from David, who simply sets up a halo of musicians around the ark and another halo of musicians around the tabernacle at the high place at Gibeon. That's just the greatest form of this wilderness tabernacle stuff. But now, the glorified temple brings all this land stuff into it. You see what I'm talking about? Wisdom has moved you out of the Sabbath day into the six days. It's moved you out of the church into the kingdom area. Whatever language you want to use, that's what's going on. So the symbolism itself does this. And you see, when you start reading the Song of Solomon or other books and you start seeing about lilies and pomegranates and other things, this links up with the temple and what the temple means. It's not other kind of literature. So... That's one thing to bear in mind about this coming of this wisdom literature. The second thing I'd like to share with you here on page 6 are the canonical considerations that we have. And that is, you've got the first seven books of the Bible, and then the next seven books match them thematically 
at a kingdom level. So, for those who may not have the notes, I'll put this out. We have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges. These books match each other. Leviticus is law from God. Deuteronomy is law from man. Numbers is death and resurrection. That's in the middle. Exodus matches Joshua stylistically. What is in Exodus? Coming out of Egypt and then the description of God's palace. In Joshua, coming into Canaan and the description of God's land. Exactly the same literary form. And in Genesis and Judges, Genesis and Judges are both narratives and there are other parallels between them. Well, corresponding to these, which initiate and establish the first priestly history of Israel. We are now priests in the land, but we don't have kings yet. We got elders, so we have some kingly elements. We got judges, so we have some kingly elements. But we don't have a king. We don't have a capital city. We don't have a glorified temple. Here in Joshua and Judges, we're still basically priestly. It's still under the big category of garden. Adam was supposed to wait for knowledge of good and evil. Nobody during this section is actually said to have knowledge of good and evil. But remember last night, the kings have knowledge of good and evil. David has knowledge of good and evil. Solomon has knowledge of good and evil. That's kingly language. So even though you have elders and rulers and judges, and in a sense they do have it, they're not said to have it. That rhetoric doesn't come into play until the second set of books, which are Samuel... Ruth, Psalms, then Job, Deuteronomy links with Proverbs, Joshua with Canticles, and Judges links with Ecclesiastes. How so? Well, in Samuel we have new beginnings and there's all kinds of Genesis recap stuff in Samuel. I have a paper on this out there. You can read it if you want. Ruth is a new exodus, but it's an exodus of a Gentile person. When the kingdom comes, we move out of Israel into this much wider world setting, and now we have an exodus story. Actually, we have a descent into another Egypt, and then an exodus out, Naomi and Ruth, an Israelite and a mixed multitude, one of each. They're women, bride stuff. Remember? Men, women. So... Woman's Exodus here. Then we have Psalms for the sanctuary, which links with Leviticus. Job, which is death and resurrection, links with Numbers. Proverbs, links with Deuteronomy. I hope these are fairly obvious. Canticles, glory in the land, glory for the king, the Solomonic bride. Joshua, we come into the land, the land is completely settled. What's the last thing in Joshua? The death of the high priest, that means everybody that's in the city of refuge gets to go home. In the last verse of Joshua, every single Israelite is on his own property. The entire land is settled. The Garden of Eden is reestablished, so to speak. Canticles, glory, happiness in the land. Ecclesiastes, failure in the land. Failure of the king. Judges, the failure is due to sin. In Ecclesiastes, the failure is due to the mistiness of life. But it's still failure in... How do you deal with failure on the part of a king? So these books correspond. And we could do more with that, but I wanted to show you 
where they fit canonically. Yeah. In Numbers, what is the death and resurrection in Numbers? Well, God says every last one of that generation is going to die. Okay. And then you have, at the end of it, it says Miriam dies, and they find these springs of water, and they sing a song to it. Songs, that's new thing. Music is new, speaking is old. Then Aaron dies. The next thing after the death of Aaron is they start conquering Canaanites, which they couldn't do. And then Moses dies, and that gets them across the river. So the death of the three leaders is... And you get a new Israel. So you got a first census, all the people in the first census die, and you get a second census, that's your resurrection. And Job undergoes death, and then when he comes back at the end, he's doubled. Jesus trades on that in the parable of the talents, the man who lets his talents go, then winds up with twice as many at the end. The guy who hangs on to his talent doesn't. If you let your talents go and die to your talents, then you get twice as many back. That happens to Job. That's because when the Father says, hey, I'll step back and give glory to the Son and the Holy Spirit, then they give glory back to Him, that's double. When each person of the Trinity gives up His glory, He gets twice as much back from the other two, right? One from each. You understand what I just said? It's arithmetic. Okay? I know that you know, when you get my age, you don't remember arithmetic anymore. The Son says, hey, I'm only doing what the Father says, and I'm leaving the Spirit's better than me. He steps back, but then the Father and the Son give him glory. That's twice as much as he gave up. He gives up glory, he gets twice as much back. That's the law. That's the way history moves. So, that's why there's death and resurrection. That's why when Adam goes to sleep, he wakes up, and now there's two of him. He has Eve. All right, on page 7, let's consider the Solomonic cycle. And by that, I mean... Five pieces of literature. The description of the temple in 1 Kings 6 and 7, which is an architectural model of the kingdom time, and then the books of Job, Proverbs, Canticles, and Ecclesiastes. Now, there's always talk about when Job is written, and people say, oh, well, which Job is this? Job is set in the land of Edom, or Esau's land. He is a believing Edomite. The other people with him are Edomites, except for Elihu, whose name means my God is Yahweh, and I think probably that he is an Israelite priest at the court of Job. Job is a king. He says so. And Job's friends are not his pals and buddies. King's friend is a title for an advisor. Hushai the Archite was David's friend. And these three friends are the three chief advisors to the king. Jesus says, no longer do I call you slaves, but friends, because I have told everything to you. The king's friend is the person who has been given all the information. And so Job's three friends are his three most trusted advisors. And he's a king. Now this is a theme in the Bible, right? How many mighty men did David have? Three. Did Daniel have three mighty men? Yeah. Jesus have three mighty men? Yeah. The three mighty men bit, chief cornerstone and the other three corners. That's the picture. David is the chief cornerstone. His three mighty men are his corners. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Peter, James, and John are the other corners. Commanders, chief advisors are called cornerstones. 
So Job is the chief cornerstone. Useful to remember that because Job's house is taken down and there's house imagery in Job. Job is the chief corner and his other guys are the other cornerstones of the kingdom. Well, when Job is struck as a king, he is in a sense dying for his people. And the book of Job is about a national disaster. See, we don't always pick that up. But it says that these raiders came in and they killed all these men. Well, that means that there's widows and orphans all over the place. Job can't take care of them. In the former days, he says, I used to take care of the widows and the orphans, and everybody blessed me. Now, he says, I'm impoverished, and there's all these widows and orphans out here. Plus, the whole land is burning. Fire falls down from heaven. So there's open pits on the land that correspond to the open pits and sores on the king's body. There is a link. Why? What are human beings made out of? Dirt. You're just clods of dirt. You're made of dirt, and there's a link between your dirt body and the land. That's in the law. The sores on Job's body correspond to the sores in the body politic. And so this is a book about being a king in a time of disaster. Because of when it happens, it happens during the time of the judges, it can't have been written up much earlier than that, any earlier than that, and because of the many links that it has with the other books, it seems very likely that this is one more book by Solomon, or produced at Solomon's court by somebody that's part of the company of the wise. It is part of this cycle of literature. So I include it. It's kingly stuff. We're not here to talk about Job in detail, but if you stop and think about it, if you start and look at the book again, Job says, I was a king. He's the wealthiest man. He's the leader. And there's all kinds of political stuff in Job. Now that he has been marked out, and it sure looks like it's his fault. God is punishing him, and the whole society is suffering, you see. Everybody in Job's kingdom is suffering because of Job's sin, because God is punishing him. So the number two and three and four men in the kingdom come and say, Job, you need to step down. One of us needs to become king, because... This is a national disaster. You sinned, and you need to step down. And Job says, basically, I'm sure he says, I'd be glad to step down, frankly, but the fact is, I didn't sin and bring this on. So then the book starts from there, and then all kinds of other things happen. God abandons him, you see. That's what we want to believe. That, well, when everybody else is against me, I still have you. And Job turns around, and doesn't look like there's anybody there. And that's his real crisis, you see. It doesn't look as if the Lord is there. Job needed to remember footsteps. Because <laughs> that's what's really going on. I mean, footsteps might as well be the book of Job. But he doesn't see it, and so that's his crisis. He doesn't have any sense that God is with him. Well, does a king go through that? Did David go through that when he was driven into exile? I mean, are there things? Do you and I go through that? Yeah, there are going to be times in your life when you go through that. So Job is applicable to us, but at this point in history, it's kingly literature. I don't know how many times, if Rich Bledsoe was here, he could tell us all kinds of stories about when the president of the university out there converts and becomes a Christian, all of a sudden he loses his job. When the chief of police converts and becomes a Christian, all of a sudden he loses his job. <laughs> What's going on there? This humiliation of the church is an important step in things. So, I include Job, and I think we need to include Job. 
Well, let's just look at some of the comparisons within this cycle. You have temple and land imagery in the Song of Solomon in Canticles. The man is described in architectural terms and the woman is described in land terms. Her belly is like a wheat field and her nose is like a tower. In fact, she's almost like the land from north to south laid out, almost. But more architectural imagery is used for him. So that's part of it. This imagery is from Solomon's temple. Pomegranates and lilies are all over it. The bride in Canticles, I believe, corresponds to Lady Wisdom in Proverbs. She's the right wife for this young king, whoever she is. And wisdom is the right wife for a king. Wisdom is personified in the first eight chapters and nine chapters and in chapter 31. That's a description of Lady Wisdom, the right wife for a king. Don't load Proverbs 31 down on your wife now. She sees a field and she buys it. That's good advice, ladies. Anytime you see a field, just buy it. I don't think so. Maybe if you are real rich. Otherwise, you have to kind of spin that passage. And, of course, Lady Wisdom in Proverbs is, practically speaking, the company of the wise. That's who we're talking about. The group of old guys and old women. There are wise women in the Bible, like the wise woman of Tekoa and Huldah and these other wise old women you need to listen to if you're a young king. The young man in Canticles and Proverbs is the adult in Ecclesiastes. Depending on how you take Ecclesiastes, I think Solomon wrote it in his prime. Others have said he wrote it in his old age. Whenever he wrote it, this is the same person. And we ought to think of it. These are kind of the same characters at different stages of their lives, different acts of the play. The bodily imagery in Canticles is followed up in Ecclesiastes 12, where we have the same kind of language describing the mistiness of the human body as it blows away at the end. The wise in Proverbs, that group of people, correspond in the book of Job to Job's friends and ultimately to God himself. His three friends, his pastor Elihu, who's an ambiguous, which side is he on? That's always a good question. And then God himself. But these are the same as in Proverbs, that group of wise men that you need to listen to. So part of what's going on in Job is, okay, I need to listen to the wise men, and the three wisest men in my kingdom come, and we all know that a lot of what they say is wise. That's always the problem with Job, is the speeches by Job's friends are full of wisdom. <laughs> and so they are three wise men. They bring gold, frankly. No, that's another story. All right? But they're three wise men, and Job is supposed to, if he's a wise king, he needs to listen to the wise. And what happens if the company of the wise has bad advice? in the midst of a crisis. I mean, this is a real kingly type question here, all right? So there's linkages here, conceptually. The praise of wisdom in Proverbs corresponds to Job 28, which is a hymn to wisdom. There are Proverbs found in Ecclesiastes and in Job. There are proverbial sections that are the same kind of language as Proverbs. So it would be good to kind of take these books together, Study each one from the perspective of the rest. What does Job look like from the perspective of Proverbs? What does Proverbs look like from the perspective of Job? This body of four books and the temple's description go together conceptually, like five sides of a pentagram. Well, a pentagon. Pentagram is something else.
Can you think of any other links among these books? Well, sleep on it. Then you think of some more, we'll add them onto this list here. The last thing, very briefly here on page 7, is that kingship is involved in all of these, and we've already touched on it, but first of all, the king and the people, or the king and the bride, is the book of Canticles. And you notice that, chiastically speaking, Canticles corresponds to Ruth. Ruth is sort of the Davidic version. She's the Davidic wife. She marries Boaz. One of those two pillars was named Boaz. That's the king's pillar. The priest's pillar is called Yachin. The king's pillar is called Boaz. Ruth marries Boaz. She's the Davidic wife, ancestor of David. The Shulamith, that is Mrs. Solomon. That's the female form of Solomon. Shulamith marries Shalomo. That's the Solomonic form. These link to each other. See, that way. So the imagery of king and people, king and bride, that's in the Song of Solomon. The relationship of the king and the wise is Proverbs. The relationship of the king and time is Ecclesiastes. Time is what provides the limitation on wisdom. Under the sun means in the present age. And it's the difficulty of time that Ecclesiastes deals with. See, wisdom understands time. So as Solomon says, there's a time for this and a time for that. That's not trite. Because if you don't have a good sense of timing, you just blow it. And nobody can tell you what the right time to do something is. That's something you learn over time, over time, become sensitive to, and know when to speak a word in season, don't we say, a word in season? There's a wrong time and a right time to do all kinds of things, premature or waiting too long. Adam sinned by prematurely eating of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. You can also wait too long. But mostly Ecclesiastes is talking about the fact that over the course of time, everything disintegrates, including your body. Everything is missed. So what do you do about that if you're a king? How do you deal with time? You can manipulate space. You can manipulate space and build a building. But how do you manipulate time? Eventually the building will crumble. That's a lot of what's going on there. So the king, his limits, and the question of the ungraspability of life and the fact that things don't endure is there in Ecclesiastes. And then in Job, the king and revolution. The king and those who rise up against him. The king and what happens when the wise don't have things to do. The king and death. The king dying for his people. All these things are there in Job. So, these are the kingship book. This is the wisdom literature. And that is all I have to say about that. Now, after I said what I said about the death penalty last night, Peter Lightheart raised the question with me that if the bride is now fully mature in the New Testament with Jesus, doesn't that change the idea that man should not usurp God's right to deal with murderers? Maybe even that has changed. Because I had argued last night that the exercise of the death penalty is part of wisdom. All the death penalties in the law allow the elders or the judges to make a decision. It's not absolutely mandatory that an adulterer be put to death or somebody who commits homosexual acts. It's going to be up to the judges to decide whether to enforce that maximum penalty or a lesser one. Except in the case of murder. God says, you will not make any decisions about premeditated murder. You will surely put him to death. And I argued that that is to send the person up to God 
for God to judge, and it's a limitation on man's right to pass judgments, that we have to simply leave it to Him, not try to rehabilitate murderers, not try to second-guess that judgment, not introduce and say, well, there was this circumstance or that circumstance in case of premeditated murder. It doesn't matter. Circumstances don't matter. That person is to be sent to God. God will deal with him. Peter raised the question, well, maybe that was true under the law, but maybe even that has changed in the New Covenant. And I don't have an answer for that. I mean, part of me says I still like the idea that there are limitations on what we are allowed to do. That no matter how much knowledge of good and evil, how much right to manipulate life and death we're given, there are lines we're not supposed to cross, and that would be one of them, at least is the way it's laid out in the Old Covenant. But I don't have any full answer for that. And if you want to expand on your question, or if anybody wants to add anything to that, that's one thing that's from last night. So, any questions or comments over last night's lesson or what I ran through this morning? Yeah. So, one other thing. The question would go the other way, too, whether we're on, again, I'm going to tell whether we're on cases when you don't have a law that tells you that that penalty is either required or committed, but you're in a situation where you know you can handle it, but you have the authority to impose that penalty for things the law doesn't explicitly say. Do we, in this more mature time, have the right to have the death penalty for other things than the Old Testament contemplated? Because we say, well, we can't handle this, and so we have to. It's one of those tough questions. Of course, my main point was knowledge of good and evil is passing judgments and is closely connected with the imposition of a death penalty in a judicial case. Yeah. Okay. The context of the temple and the tabernacle. The tabernacle, you were saying, the tabernacle is liminal wilderness space, you went through and then come back out, right? Liminal wilderness space. Yeah. I think the temple is too, but it's kind of something else as well. Yeah, but do the, are the, like the Day of Atonement means something different than something given the different, the difference in the meaning of the two Or do the sacrifices have some different significance? Or is Israel doing something different than they were in the I don't know. The question is, the tabernacle is this liminal wilderness space, this in-between space. You go back into the in-between space and have your sins forgiven and you come back into the world, cross back into the land. The temple has that same meaning, but the temple also has this other stuff on it as well, I would say. But does that change or re-nuance what the sacrifice, the sacrificial system means, what happens when you bring an ascension offering If you bring an ascension offering in the context of the temple and the unclean part of the animal is washed with water from, which is it? The priest's wash. I think the animal is washed in the water from the great sea and the priest's wash from the water chariots. But it's either that or the reverse. Does the fact that the water comes from these things rather than from the labor of cleansing, does that change somewhat the meaning of the ascension? Is it somehow... I don't know. I've never thought about that. Maybe in some sense what ascends is more glorious. Or maybe it ascends with more connected to it. or I don't know. But it would seem as if in a somewhat different context, the sacrifices themselves would take on slightly different... Do you have any quick thoughts on that? You asked the question. Yes. <laughs> I was thinking of the, 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 the 
water crossing. But if you have something comparable uh, in the temple, in the, in the temple, you can pass it through the, and then you have an arrangement to pass it through the droplet of the water tray. So you're going through the Red Sea to the temple, and you're going back out through the door to the same kind of that same kind of movement. Yeah. So if the water chariots, which are, draw this for those of you who don't know it, let's put the temple here, and the big altar is out here. I cannot make a square with my left hand. The water chariots are lined up five here and five here. So although you as a layman don't pass through these things, your sacrifice symbolically does. And this is like the water standing up on two sides as you went through the Red Sea. So the water stood like walls of brass to let the tribes of Israel pass. So you're running the gauntlet between these divided waters up and back down or down and up. But that would have a related symbolism. Yeah? I think it's a good question. I don't have any... Jeff? Uh on the threshing floor. When the woman gets to come in to some meaningful color might that also connect up with the sacrifice Jeff is pointing out that the temple is built on the threshing floor and so it's a marriage place and the tabernacle is not, although Yahweh married Israel at Sinai. So the activity in the temple would have a more marital context. Yeah, I would be, yeah. There's more of a stress on the marriage covenant being renewed in these sacrifices than there was in the tabernacle sacrifices. It's the same actions, but there's more of a marriage covenant being renewed idea in the temple than there was in the tabernacle. Maybe. At this point, this is speculative, but I think these are good questions. When you get to the restoration, these laws change. I mean, the command that every Israelite has to come to Israel three times a year obviously is not applying to those in the diaspora. They couldn't possibly do it. We don't know how they made these adjustments. How do you do the inspection of jealousy when there's no dust on the floor of the temple? It has a gold floor. You're supposed to take dirt out of the floor of the tabernacle to do the inspection of jealousy ritual. Well, any dirt here, so how do you do it? I'm not told. They probably never did it anyway. Bert? You picked up on what Jeff said when I was dry last night. When Solomon built bands, does he build temples around for his wives? Yeah, that's good. The bright aspect of the temple is seen in that when Solomon goes bad, he builds a whole lot of other shrines for the other gods of his other wives. So that there's this linkage. Well, there is no court of the Gentiles in the Bible. That's a sinful thing that the Jews came up with in order to make a distinction between Jews and Gentiles. And there's no court of women either. That's all sin when the Jews divided up the temple that way. In Numbers 15, it says any Gentile who wants to can come and draw near on exactly the same terms as an Israelite. 
So they had exactly the same access to exactly the same places and rituals as an Israelite, except for Passover. So that would have continued in Solomon's temple. I think that's part of Jesus' offense where he says this house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. And he says you've made it a den of thieves, but he could also have said, and you've divided it up and made Gentiles second class by putting them over here on the side. Yeah. On your classic structure here for the, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, kind of a priestly thing, and then you have your kingdom classic structure there. Yeah, and you have a prophet one too. Is there, that's, is there a yeah, I've got a paper out there. Gives it my best shot. What's the name of that? A canonical investigation. Yeah, I think that you have seven prophetic books that link with these as well, and then I think starting with Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. You would have Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, John, and Revelation as a fourth set. But I can't do anything with Paul and the uh, circumcision epistles, but they probably fit that way too. I'm sure there's a way to make them fit. And there's 49 books in the Bible, so there's got to be seven sets of seven, and I just think about it all worked out. I'll make it fit. I'll get it in there. That's that good Procrustean theology. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm